tonight on This Is Vinyl Tap. Losing shape, trying to act casual. Foreigners in fancy houses. World moving on a woman's hips. In 1948, Columbia Records introduced the 33 and a third RPM long player record. One year later, RCA Victor introduced the 45 RPM single. Listeners now had a choice, only the hits or the full album. In the last half of the 60s, the best bands realized the potential of the longer format and began to build a cohesive body of music that must be heard unbroken. The arrival of downloadable music has increased the temptation to stay in the shallow end with the hits. This podcast believes every album tells a story. Tonight, we tell one of those stories. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. That's right, I said afternoon. This is an official afternoon broadcast from the fine gentleman at This Is Vinyl Tap. Uh, this afternoon, I am joined by Encyclopedia Tony. Howdy, everybody. And J.M. the Woman's Man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all women are after producers of podcasts. <laughs> Say hello to the ladies out there, J.M. <laughs> hello, ladies. Thank you all both for being here today. Uh, wouldn't miss it for the world. <laughs> well, Let's talk about both women. Tony and I are particularly excited today. Man, because this uh, this means we don't have to listen to this record anymore. <laughs> I I will say I hate to say this, but I will say this morning I I said I'm really excited about this this podcast this afternoon. Lindsay goes, why? I said because I, we can put this album away and not listen to it again. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to go ahead and tell you the name of this record. This is "Remain in the Light" by the Talking Heads. Remain in light. Remain in light. There's no article. There's no article. Remember, that's one of the reasons I don't like the. <laughs> the uh, if if you don't know who chose this album, welcome to our podcast. We hope you'll come back again, and we'll hope you'll check out some of the other ones. If you do know who picked this album, welcome back. We love our repeat listeners, all six of you. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> I got a question for Jonathan J.M. Rowe. <laughs> Jonathan J.M. Rowe, what do the Talking Heads do better than any other band? Find a groove and work it into the ground. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, well, that's an interesting comment because... Um, in reading lots of reviews of this album, I would find something that typically somebody would write that you would think, well, that's not a positive, but they meant it as a positive. Mm -hmm. Case in point, run it into the ground. <laughs> well, before we go much further, um, Tony already mentioned this, and it's, it's, a accurate, uh, it's an accurate observation. Tony and I are on the opposite sides of almost every critic in the world, and we're on the opposite side of uh, the popular opinion, too. 
having said that, um, Jam. Yes. I got a question for you. Shoot. Why did you pick this album? <laughs> um. Well, okay, lots of reasons. Um. First of all, you guys both know that I, I kind of gravitate to the more experimental sides of 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 uh, popular music, um, and I find this album to be very experimental, and I I I really like where it goes. I've been aware of the Talking Heads from fairly early on in their career. Uh, in, in it, I found them pretty early in my musical explorations. Uh, I remember seeing him on Saturday Night Live singing uh, Take Me to the River. Al Green song and thinking they were just weird, but at the same time, you know, the same kind of reaction I had to Van Morrison just being sort of, yeah, this is bizarre. I've never seen anything like it. And I, I can't decide if I like it or not. And then um, a few years later, MTV came out and uh, they had that video for once in a lifetime. And I just remember being captivated by that video and just being captivated by of uh, the chorus in particular of that song. Were you uh, captivated because your father is a minister? <laughs> I don't know. There that. was a lot of ministers <laughs> slapping people upside the head in that and video. Is, that's uh, true, yeah. them of different ailments. Yeah, and we'll get to the we'll get to that in a little while about how this album actually came about. Um Ooh, oh, so, excuse me, Jam. Yeah. Ooh. Ooh. I'm sorry, I'm having deja vu. Um, we've been here before, J.M. Yes, we have. And uh, we'd like to play a little game of connections with you two gentlemen. Uh, J.M., you are up first. Can you give us a connection to a previous podcast? Uh, yes, I can. Uh, you too. Um, the producer is Brian Eno, Oh, who also produced... Unforgettable Fire by U2 with Daniel Lanois. Um, I've got another surprising and one. And there's a... Go ahead. Uh, Brian Eno seems to come up every time you talk. Um, <laughs> <laughs> he was also a member of Roxy Music. That's correct. Yeah. So and, uh, let's let Tony take a try because I think you're going to have a lot more than Tony. <laughs> Tony, do you have a connection? With this album? This album or connecting to... Or this band connecting to a previous... Yeah, I mean, the, the, there's a, a connection to the Ramones, which we've talked about on a previous episode. And that connection is... Well, they uh, they got their start at CBGB's and opened for the Ramones on a European tour. Uh, uh, excuse me, Tony. Yes, sir. As you know, I'm a big fan of the sexy tractor genre of country music. I uh -huh. uh, don't know anything about CBGB's. Uh, could you fill me in? It was a, a club in the Bowery that was run by a gentleman named Hilly Crystal, who uh, it was essentially the epicenter of the New York punk scene. That's where television and Blondie and the Ramones all got started. And 
the talking heads got their start there as well, which mm -hmm. is um, a surprise to me. I mean, I knew they played there, but until doing the research for this podcast, I didn't realize how important CBGBs was to the formation of this band. So, uh, and yeah. apparently they popped in there at exactly the right time because yeah, they didn't yeah. have a long waiting period before they were a big deal. Well, I, yeah. th I think uh, just... I think it was the singing that just blew everybody away. I, th yeah. I think what... Uh, <laughs> I, the thing about CBGBs was it seems like every band... That that was the right time for every one of those bands. Right. Um, so, yeah. Well, uh, Jonathan J.M. Rowe, you seem to indicate that you had some more connections. I do have some more connections. Um, the Cars... Anybody want to take that one? Skinny ties? Jerry Harrison was a member of the Modern Lovers. Right. Oh, yeah. And so is uh, David Robinson of oh, the yeah. Cars. Oh, yeah, we talked about Oh, that's a good one, Jerry. Yeah. That's Very what good. we like. Those are the kinds we really like. Yeah. Uh, there's, there's another one I know of. I don't know if uh, you guys are going to think of the same one. It's just kind of a casual connection. Well, John Kill. Oh, yes. Well, after all, yes, you're supposed to say more, Tony. Yeah. Well, John Cale was uh, in the audience with Brian Eno when he saw the Talking Heads open for the Ramones in Europe and wanted to produce them, but Brian Eno beat him to the punch. <laughs> that's, right. so that's another Jonathan J.M. Rowe pick. Uh, yep. So yep. we seem to be in the Jonathan J.M. Rowe Eddie. The universe. Yeah. Multiverse. <laughs> well, and the, and the last one I'll, I'll give is uh, Rhett Davies, who was the engineer on this album. He was also the engineer on the Roxy Music album. Um, Again, the J.M. Uh, Eddie. <laughs> uh, he was the engineer for a lot of Roxy Music albums, um, a lot of Brian Eno albums, but um, he was the engineer on Avalon by Roxy Music. And he was I think he was a co-producer as well. Anyway. And that Avalon episode is available. All of it has not been downloaded yet, so you can still listen. Yep. Um, okay. Uh, who wants to tell us how this band got going? I can uh, do a little bit of that. And All right. You guys jump in when you want to. Um, so three of the four original members of the Talking Heads, Chris France, Tina Weymouth, and David Byrne, all met at the Rhode Island School of Design. Uh, Byrne and France were their first real collaboration was for a student film. They did a soundtrack for a student film. Then after working on that, they decided to kickstart a band which they called the Artistics. Um, interestingly enough, while they were with while they were in that band, that's when they wrote Psycho Killer. It was originally written for that band, the mm -hmm. big Talking Heads. I guess there's their first hit. They're kind yeah. of yeah. Um, that was always a slow dance what, favorite. <laughs> what's funny about that was that Tina Weymouth was a, a, the, a big fan of the Artistics, and she began dating friends, and then she also served as the band's driver as well. Um, she didn't actually join forces with them until the three of them moved to New York, and uh, after the Artistics dissolved, and they moved to New York City, and they get a band together, and they can't find a bass player. And so David Byrne convinces her to pick up the bass and learn how to play the bass. 
Um, Proving once again that uh, <laughs> the bass is the entry-level uh, instrument. Yeah. Um, and the, when they moved to New York, they're three and a half blocks from CBGB. So that's where CBGB's kind of kicks into it. They they actually took things seriously, started practicing every night, um, and they got a gig opening for the Ramones, as I mentioned earlier. My one of my favorite stories is so, you know, Johnny Ramone was the guy who kind of ran the business side for the Ramones, and Hilly Crystal, the owner of CBGV's, asked if this band, Talking Heads, could open for him. And Johnny Ramone's response was, uh, yeah, they're gonna suck anyway, so go ahead. <laughs> he was always Mr. Positive. Yeah. Um, what's what's kind of interesting about that is that I, I'm fascinated by the fact that the Talking Heads early on were very self conscious about how good they were. They were almost instantly um, lauded as kind of the new thing. Uh, their live shows, they got a, a bit of a reputation for live shows, but they never felt comfortable in their own skin. In 76, when things started really kicking off for the punk scene in New York, they, there was an album released on Atlantic called uh, Live at CBGB's, and the, they were supposed to be on it. It was a double live album. They were supposed to be on it, and they pulled out at the last minute because they just didn't feel like it was, they didn't like what, what was represented, but they didn't pull off pull out quick enough so their picture is still in the album even though they're not on the album oh really yeah and this goes this insecurity goes to when they were getting a record contract because there were a ton of people interested in them they they got um what columbia um arista uh obviously sire uh, mm-hmm. um and one, one of my favorite stories about that was when they were shopping around for labels they decided to take um some advice of an elder statesman and and uh lou reed invited them back to his apartment and started critiquing the band and, and telling them about you know various things he do their music, but is uh, you know he gave them such sage advice like telling David Byrne not to wear short sleeve shirts on stage because his arms were too hairy. You know, this is typical Lou Reed. Yeah. Sense. But he also this is really interesting. He also offered to produce them and he wanted them signed to a management deal through his management. It wasn't until they actually looked at the contract where they would have agreed to give away all of the royalties to Lou Reed and Jeez. his manager. It's like, France was talking about it and said, why would anybody sign a contract like that? Anyway, they end up, they, they end yeah. up, um, go ahead, Jim. Well, they, they were very, they were a very smart group of guys. And then, uh, well, I, I, I can understand people thinking all sorts of things about this band. They look like smart dorks that would do your finances for you, or <laughs> no, they're, they're uh, fix definitely your computer. A, a nerdy, nerdy-looking band. Yeah, uh, I would not. And and <laughs> I that's I hadn't heard that story. The fact that Lou Reed was gonna think he was gonna outsmart these guys, I think that's funny. Well, you know, <laughs> the guy, the uh, guy's a, a a cynic, cynic. So I'm yeah. sure he felt like he could. And plus, he was, you know, he's of that sort of sleazy area that are part of like you know whatever yeah and his Pat, parents were accountants patty, or his dad was patty smith um hated them because they look like a bunch of rich kids you know so it was kind of this opposite sort oh, of classism robbery. very classy yeah. yeah um what she was here not too long ago so yeah. um when they're shopping around for a record label, or not shopping around record labels are shopping around for them um they are still really unsure of their studio ability, so they wanted a second guitarist and a keyboard player. Um, and France is given the number of Jerry Harrison from uh, Ernie Brooks, who was the former bass player of the Modern Lovers, as JM mm-hmm. mentioned. Jerry Harrison. I'm sorry. Um, who are the Modern Lovers? I couldn't think of a band that uh, I, we could pretend to like. <laughs> the Modern Lovers keep coming up on this 
podcast. Butterworms are great. Yeah. You know, I didn't ask if they were good. I'm just, can you tell us a little bit about them for the uninitiated? They were a Boston-based yeah. band. Um, just another band out of Boston? Yeah. They started off as, uh, J- Jonathan Richmond was the kind of the leader of right. it, and he wrote some, uh, just, they were quirky, they were offbeat. I guess they were almost post-punk before post-punk really existed. They were pre-post-punk. Their yeah. big hit was what, Roadrunner? One, two, three, four, five, six... Yeah, 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 and then they Pablo Picasso, yeah, uh, which John Cale also covered, it, and they were produced by John Cale. Why do I think he did more than produce for them at one point? At one point, I think he was an actual yeah, member. I think so, too. Yeah. I think after the Velvet Underground, he... Yeah, was, he actually kind of... He was like a... What do you call it? A player coach? Yeah. yeah. So... Yeah. Um, but, a little uh, baseball lingo right in the middle of baseball season, <laughs> which you can't watch on normal TV anymore. Yeah. The, well, day. the interesting thing about Jerry Harrison is uh, he was still pretty bummed about the breakup of the Modern Lovers. Well, he was a Harvard kid. Well... He he had just enlisted, re-enlisted in or enlisted in the Har- in Harvard Graduate School because yeah. he, he wasn't sure he wanted to do music anymore. And I think Jonathan Richmond kind of went on his own way, but he kind of created his own band called Jonathan Richmond and the Modern Lovers. And I don't think any of the original band was in invited to join That's him. Nice, yeah. So yeah, so Jerry Harrison was just kind of kicking around Boston and. I think he, when did he actually move to New York? That's well, what happened was they, he said, okay, I'll list, I'll see you guys play live and I'll make a decision on that. So they arrange a show in Cambridge. He goes to it. He's not impressed by the live show, but he is intrigued by what he sees. Mm-hmm. So he's, he says, well, okay, what I'll do is I'll come down to New York and we'll jam with you a little bit. So this is in 76. He jams with them a little bit um, and says, okay, this feels right, but I'm not, officially joining until you guys have a record deal so they end up signing with with sire um the seymour stein in in a documentary about the talking head says that he the first time he's walking by cbgb's or something he hung out there a lot and he hears them on stage and was instantly drawn in by what he heard he said it was just captivating whatever and he wanted to sign these guys immediately but anyway, so yeah, they, they end up signing with Sire and then um, putting out their debut in 77, which well, was, yeah. I mean, it, Steins was unhappy with the way they were coupled with punk rock. Yeah. He felt like that gave the wrong impression. Well, if you hear them interviewed, they were actually, you know, disco was actually huge in New York as well. And they said that they kind of liked disco and they wanted to incorporate elements of that into their into their music. He. He actually, back to what you said, Doug, I think in an interview, now I don't know if, I did not do my double checking on this to see if this is accurate or not, but he says... Did he, he come up with the term to that's replace what, punk rock? That's what he said. He came up with the term new wave. Now, I'd never heard that Seymour Stein invented the term I haven't either. That's why I, but I was he teasing with it. that because I thought you would know. Yeah, uh, no, he says it, and I, I apologize. I didn't really do much digging to see if that's the case or not. Well, you does. know, that's an opportunity for our fans out there to get on our website and tell us whether or not that is a true statement 
did Seymour Times come up with Steins come up with uh, the term? New, New way. way. We'd love yeah. to know the answer um, to that. And if you're the real guy who came up with it, uh, send us a postcard. Well, and and I don't. I mean, uh, yeah, punk, punk. Unfortunately, due to the Sex Pistols, sort of started developing an an, an unsavory flavor, and people didn't want to have anything to do with it. Um, but we've talked. But this about band it. doesn't sound very punk. No, they don't. But we talk about we've talked about this before. What was going on in the New York scene that was called punk? I mean. Uh, I know they sort of predated a little bit, but I mean, television isn't doesn't sound like the Ramones. Blondie all- doesn't sound like the Ramones, but they're all kind of lumped into that same right. scene. Yeah, um, the CBGB scene. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and obviously it was an important scene for these guys as well. Um, a lot more Almost important everybody than I it was. that is in the punk scene is really not punk rock. <laughs> no, I mean the only thing that gives I think gives the Ramones their street cred in terms of that is how they kind of boiled everything down to this minimalist three chord thing, and they just played lightning fast. Yeah, but they're I mean the Ramones. We talked about this as well. The Ramones are writing '60s pop songs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. which is about different things like sniffing glue and you know <laughs> Charles Manson and stuff. But uh, and ladies and gentlemen, if you have a child in the car, we'd like to make it clear right now that we are anti-glue sniffers. <laughs> <laughs> yes. You know, if you want to smell the sticky side of the tape every now and then, that's different. <laughs> yeah, we don't we don't uh, disapprove that, but the glue sniffing is not good. Um, Anyway, they uh, they go in the studio and they release their debut, which is in '77, which is aptly called "Talking at '77." You know who produced that album? Uh yes, it was Bon John John Bon Jovi's. Cousin, yeah, Tony yeah. Bongiovi, or how yeah, do you say Bongiovi, um, who oddly enough was responsible for, like, he produced some odd stuff. There was a guy, I think his name, I forget how you say his name, Meko, maybe Me- Me- Oh, the Miko, did, the guy who did those weird disco versions, yeah, of Star Wars themes and stuff. Um, he also produced share uh, a share couple of Ramones albums as well, so it doesn't seem that far off. Wow! Um, so he was kind of all over the place. Yeah, the uh, that first album doesn't do a whole lot. It doesn't even chart in the U.S. It only goes to sixty in the U.K. But it was critics love it. They love it. It's voted uh, one of the best albums in the Village Voices uh, Jazz and Pop uh, Critics Poll at the end of the year, and that has the single "Psycho Killer" on it, which. One of the reasons it starts to gain some infamy was because it was released, even though it was written much earlier than that, it was released around the same time as the Son of Sam killings were happening in New York. And people naturally thought that it was relating to that. It had nothing to do with it. Yeah. But they get exposure because of it. Yeah. Timing's everything. Well, speaking of timing... uh, I've got a serial killer song just waiting for the next... (laughs) Um... 
so the, before their second album is when Eno ends up seeing them. Like I said, they're touring Europe with the Ramones, and Eno mm-hmm. and John Cale go see them, and Eno falls in love with them, and he invites uh, he invites David Byrne back to his apartment to listen to music. And one of the things he plays him is is it Fela Kuti? Is that how you say yeah, the name? exactly? Yeah. And uh, who is an uh, Afrobeat? pioneer he's nigerian and mm-hmm. who will play a pretty big part in the talking head sound in the future including the album we're talking about tonight yeah um, Eno was ecstatic because david byrne was the first person that he met who was excited about fila kuti he said nobody in england gave a a tinker's cuss yeah so um but he produces their second album which as we mentioned bummed out john kale because he wanted to do it yeah more Um, songs about buildings and food well yeah and it makes sense to me because what did i say in the roxy music episode if if uh brian ferry didn't sue david byrne for ripping off roxy music sound i don't know you know he's missing an opportunity there yeah because it, uh, roxy music was obviously very influential on a talking head sound in fact they played um love is the drug was like part of the, in the i could see road, that that's very uh, yeah yeah love is the drug I, I'm not going to say anything about the talking heads not being worth the critical praise they get. But I also think it is something about the type of music they do and the way they do it that would attract critics. I, uh, I, I think, just speaking from my point of view, I think there is a little bit of a, I don't want to admit I don't get this going on with critics. You know? Would it remind you of a parade with a nude? Yes, thing? I was. I I I wasn't going to say that, but I did have it in my notes just in case it popped up. <laughs> well, I think well, it's popped up. <laughs> well, I think that. I mean, how many of those guys from the CB from CBGB really got bad reviews? I think that that was just kind of a melting pot of. I mean, there was some interesting stuff coming out of there. Television is a remarkable band. Um, you know, the Ramones, Blondie. I mean, Blondie was another one that kind of embraced disco. I well, think everybody was coming out with really unique new things. Yeah. There wasn't a lot of, you, you compare that to Nashville today where everybody's trying to sound like the last thing. Yeah. I, it sounds like everybody was trying to sound like a new thing. Yeah. And I, and I don't it was think, a new way. I don't think it's fair. I don't really think it's fair to lot to throw that. Um, the emperor wears no clothes, new, no clothes thing out really on the, on that early talking head stuff. I think that's a legitimate question kind of on later, maybe even the album we're talking about, if you want to talk about that and the amount of critical praise and just accolades this album gets. Yeah. But the, uh, but the early stuff is interesting. I, I will admit I have always loved, I know this is something you probably have an opposite opinion to me. about. I've always loved David Byrne's voice. Always. I think it works mm-hmm. um, on some songs better than others, but I've always been fascinated by his voice. And when it's when it's when it's hitting on all cylinders and the song is the right song, I think it's I think it's fantastic. Well, there's a uh, it, there's a sense of humor about like it, it's almost like he's when he sings, it's almost like he's floating above just watching stuff 
and he just has this a detachment from what's going on with the music a lot of times, but still in that, it's still in there. just hit the word of the detachment. Detachment. <laughs> this band is all about detachment. Uh, when when I hear this, I hear someone who is not burying his soul at all. No, it it is um, not at all. Yeah, I, I I think I think that's I think that's right. I mean, it's almost like an impressionistic, or not even an impressionistic painting. I'm, it's more like a you know. Uh, it's very theatrical. It's very. It's characters. It's almost surreal. A lot of the stuff you could say, "Hey, I could see Salvador Dali doing the cover art for this music." Or, if you can watch, um, what's what's the critically uh, uh, slobbered over film they did? Stop making sense. Stop making yeah. sense. You can watch Stop Making Sense, which some people consider the best rock and roll concert film ever. I think it's one and of the best. Those yeah. are all people who didn't see. Um, the, the, last waltz. the last waltz but um, <laughs> you can watch that whole thing and you know you know less about the band than you did before they started <laughs> there is nothing they're giving nothing away they're not a, they're not exposing themselves they're not up there saying the song is I wrote about my sister when she got pregnant. Yeah, and, I mean it's none of that stuff. It's it's it, not nothing professional it, whatsoever. I, yeah, and that's not a criticism. It's no, just, I, I, it works. There's not a lot. I mean, and his voice, but is that aids that? Yeah, is that that unusual for? A, I think a lot of new wave bands were like that. I mean, Devo is definitely dis- detached from what they're doing. Yeah, um, no, yeah. I I think it's very common in that yeah. genre. It's common in glam rock too. I think. Where, yeah, where the the performance is more important, with the exception of someone like Queen, maybe. Yeah. Well, yeah. You, but if Queen you, does expose it. So. Well, it's the same thing. Like, like I think that's another reason why Brian Eno was so attracted to this band, um, because there was this. First of all, they really liked to experiment, and the second part is, yeah, if you listen to any Brian Eno lyrics, I mean, you, you're not getting anything about Brian Eno from that. You have there's no. I can't relate to much of the stuff he's talking about. I can't relate to almost well, anything that the Talking Heads are talking about. The lyrics are. Are, you know, Doug talks about this a lot. Lyrics serve the purpose to communicate. And the lyrics um, on a lot of Talking Heads stuff, to me, seem to be just another element to the soundscape they're trying to develop. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think they do dish up some images. Um, yeah. But this guy's not trying to put a fine point on anything. No. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, speak anyway, so speaking of Eno, as I said, he, he produces their next album, which is fear of music well we did we, oh we yeah talking about more songs about, about buildings, buildings and food yeah which is just just rolls off the tongue uh <laughs> and that album has the al green cover you were talking about taking yeah the river, that's which that's was their first top 40 hit um it's yeah. an odd choice for this band it is I, I it seems like there's always a struggle with this band and trying to find a soul like trying to find some soul in their music right but play it completely soulless if that makes any sense <laughs> yeah it does um, <laughs> it is it is absolutely soulless and i don't know if if this was an accident or if someone thought what if we took a soulful song and just sucked the soul you can yeah, see deconstructed it somebody getting their soul taken out of them and then asked to get up and sing the song yeah well soul music is not something you can really 
deconstruct. I mean, the whole thing, uh, this, you hear Al Green sing this song, it is so different, even though the, the song itself doesn't sound that much different. I mean, they do keep the, the chord structure. They do keep the, I think they even keep almost the BPMs at the same level, but just the way that, um, it, it's 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 like a science fiction deal yeah. where you say in the future androids will make all the music <laughs> so it, it's really funny you say that because in particular and again i think you're talking about stuff that really comes to light on remain in light haha pun intended <laughs> but it's that album sounds like if somebody said to like you know the big thing right now is all this stuff generated by ai and there's always right. something mm-hmm. just slightly off about it. You right. know, like I saw someone posted a bunch of paintings that were done, you know, digital paintings done by AI, and they just, there's something not right about them. Yep. And this, this album we're talking about tonight in particular sounds like a bunch of robots made it. Well, what if Waze got. <laughs> Used, used his voice for their album. Your yeah. turn is, I mean, it would fit perfectly. Oh, wow. That's a good, um, I think that's a good. <laughs> but before we get to all that, we got one more album to talk about just briefly, which is Fear of Music, which was their first, kind of their first hit. That was released in 79. Yeah. Uh, it reached number 21 on the Billboard 200, number three in the UK. And it's uh, the and it's kind of a precursor of things to come because the second single on the album called I Zimbra. I Zimbra. Which Eno co-wrote um, yeah. is very much a, a, a kind of a foretelling of what's to come in yeah and they've got this is the first one where they actually expand the the lineup i think that's really the only song that has more than the core members of the talking heads and Eno. i i'm fascinated by his relationship with the band because he i i I think at one point and it may have been for remain in light he wanted to have co-billing with the band Mm -hmm. and they said absolutely not well and but but it seems almost appropriate with the amount of input he has yeah. in the way the music is structured yeah he, I, I was just wondering if if he were if if this were the faces um which one would david be the faces he wouldn't be rod stewart why but it's it's what this story reminded me of when somebody else shines the band so much well, oh well okay yeah yeah i didn't know, mean the voice by the way yeah okay well, yeah, no, I get you. Um, it's it's by the end. It sounds like he wants his own bus and his own uh, well he, dressing he, room. He, and def- he definitely uh, has some issues with ego. Well, he also has. He's on the autistic spectrum. That's what I've heard about. He he says he is. He's never been. Clinically he's never been diagnosed. clinically diagnosed. I'll diagnose him right now. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but yeah, he he's definitely got something going on. I mean, prior to this being recorded the band was really in particular the rhythm section who were married tina lamath and uh chris france chris france were having some real issues with i mean he would do things like they would co-write a song together and he would get give himself the only credit on it i mean yeah really petty stuff like that yeah Um, because all these most of these songs came out of jams well 
And and the the other thing that kind of influences this album is he and Brian Eno are working on stuff together. They're work. This, My, yeah, this is going to blow your mind. So they're working on this album called My Life and the Bush of Ghosts, which is released after Remain in Life. It they was, but they were started on it, on it before. And it it's an album of like African rhythms and electronic music. And it was also so it started off with something that Eno had been experimenting with. Uh, like there's a song called R.A.F. And it's taking broadcasts, radio broadcasts, and putting music to them. And so if you listen to My Life in the Bush of Ghosts, almost every song starts off like that. Do you have ideas? said this will blow your mind um i own that album i don't know why i own that album. <laughs> i have no idea where it came from but it is in, my birthday present it is JM. in my my vinyl lps i have oh really album. you have the lp what yeah. the, wow what's the album the two did together later um everything happens today i don't know i've, I've got that yeah that's a great album i think you gave it to me might have anyway Maybe you gave i've, me I've the got other a question one. for jonathan jm Rowe. all right before we get too much further I'd, I'd just like a rundown on these uh, four musicians and how you rank them in terms of their instrument. Oh, okay. I'd, I'd be happy to do that. Um, I'll, I'll start with Chris Fran Franz. I think he's a remarkable drummer. He is not a flashy drummer, but he's got that James Brown, uh, just backbeat, heavy with the left is he hand. Doing the most work? I think he's he's doing a lot of work. Um but I think he, he's absolutely remarkable. Uh, Jerry Harrison is probably the most schooled of the of the bunch. He's he is very precise when he's playing. Uh, his keyboard playing is is I think not the most inventive in the world. I mean, none of these guys are the most inventive musicians in the world. But they when you they get together and they start figuring out what sounds to make and all that, it it becomes more interesting. Tina Weymouth is one of my favorite bass players in the world. She is so in the pocket. So, she... <laughs> I, I feel really bad for her because she has gotten, I mean, David Byrne has treated her horribly. Yeah. It seems like she's treated horribly by a lot of people. And when you listen to the talking heads, that bass. especially this album, yeah. you can't, you can't not hear the bass. Yeah, yeah. I mean, just look, uh, Psycho Killer, the, uh, that opening riff on Psycho Killer. Oh, the uh, Take Me to the River, right. the bass line on Take Me to the she, River is fantastic. I, I think she's, um, she's not my favorite bassist, but I think she's, un I think she's the unsung hero of this band in a lot yeah. of ways, and she doesn't give the credit that she deserves. I just think the the rhythm section in and of itself is is been discredited quite a bit. Well, I think most of this album is rhythm. Yeah. <laughs> it is. So, what about David Byrne? Um, he's, uh, you What's know... What's his I'm, range? What's his vocal range? I don't know. Like it's not... Half an octave? Half an octave, yeah. Uh, he's an interesting... He's not another one who's not very, you know... Uh, He's not a fantastic guitar player. He, he does do some 
But again, he uses the instrument. If you listen to another album that he did where Brian Eno's on it, and he didn't wasn't on it a lot. The Catherine Wheel. First Byrne plays almost all the instruments on that, and it's very interesting to hear what he can do with percussion, what he can do with drums. But everything, like you were just saying, Doug, is rhythm. I mean, he's so he is so mired in in rhythm that it you can't hard. It's a lot of times you can't even tell what chords he's playing. Well, uh, I, I think they're incidental. I my impression, and I think I read this, and I think I thought it too, is. They lay down a groove, they lay down a rhythm track, and he sits there by himself, probably in a dark studio, making up words, singing tunes, and eventually that turns into something that he's labeling a song. Yeah. Sometimes he does make a song. Sometimes mm-hmm. he has a catchy little uh, tune that he comes up with, but a lot of times it's just hollering. And <laughs> uh, I, I think yeah. he's a great holler. Holler. I, 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 I was going to ask this question, and, and uh, I don't know if I should wait till we actually dig into the album because there's a slight bit of like things we need to talk about in terms of laying the groundwork before mm-hmm. this is recorded. But here's my question. So we've asked this question before on albums, mainly albums I bring up about is this rock? I will ask this question is this music? Well, it's it's music. It has uh, rhythm, and it there is melody sometimes. I think more appropriate. The more appropriate question is: is are these songs? Okay, there you go. Are these songs? Um, and I would venture to say no. They are snippets of group of of. Uh, and there's, I would say there's one, maybe two songs that are or two pieces. I should say that are that are ex- an exception. But uh, yeah, I think that it's it's it sounds like they just got together and say, okay, let's clip four minutes out of this groove and let's do another four minutes out of this. Which I believe is how they describe what they When you when you listen to David Byrne singing over this stuff, it's it's fascinating that he's got this melody to the extent that he has a melody over this this rhythmic groove that and they and they don't seem to be connected in any real way. But they work in the sense of that they sound complete in what they're trying to do um i'd listen to this going i i don't know where this the 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 back the the what he's laying the melody over has nothing to do with the melody he's singing but for some reason even if i don't like what he's doing it makes sense yeah it's fascinating to me i mean that's you're you're hitting the nail on the head that's why i find this band so fascinating that i zimbra song on on fear of music it's it's to me, I don't have. That's was there ever more of an aptly named album for this band for your music? <laughs> yeah, and th- their influences are uh, unusual. Like that I Zimbra song is uh, based on uh, who's the co. There's a, the lyrics are uh, attributed to some like Dada esque poet. That the the point is not to actually sing words. It's to just make notes or just make uh just make sounds with your voice and that's what was going on on that and i think that's what's carrying them into uh remain in light 
So let's just briefly talk about the setting for this. So as I mentioned, the band, in particular the rhythm section, wasn't really happy with what David Byrne, his, how controlling he was. So France and Weymouth end up going on vacation. They go to the Caribbean to figure out what they're going to do. Um, they end up get buying an, or purchasing an apartment or staying in an apartment above Compass Point Studios in Nassau, which is where they recorded, is it more songs about building yeah. food? Yeah. The, the Talking Heads recorded their album? Most of it. Anyway, they're, they're trying to figure out what they're going to do. They're laying down, sort of laying down grooves on their own or whatever, um, you know, messing about. And then David Byrne and Harrison show up later and they start talking about the, their issues. And so it's decided they're going to take a different approach. So instead of being a lead singer who writes... You know this the words and they're just the backup band which is kind of how they felt yeah they decide they're going to um sacrifice this is what david burns says: sacrifice their egos for mutual cooperation now i think only one person really needed to sacrifice an <laughs> ego but uh, that, well we do that here every day we do, yeah. and we do. um and so when Eno arrives, it's it's a bit of a surprise because he had been a little bit reluctant to continue working with the band. Um, but when he heard what they were doing with these rhythm things, mm-hmm. he got he got excited, and so they thought, okay, we're going to do what I kind of always wanted to do, and uh, and get this and and kind of base things on this on this African polyrhythm stuff. And uh, and in particular that like I mentioned that uh, Fela Kuti um, he had an album called Aphrodisiac which was I think it released in '73 that sort of became the template at least that's the story and I say that for a reason the template behind this album and there was even an outtake called Fela's Riff that was um, not added to the album but yeah um, but at, that being said and this was even in the uh, in the uh, publishing materials for this album when it came out talking about all the uh all the polyrhythms and african music based stuff david byrne has is on record as saying that was actually all blown out of proportion really so as much as people and you read every review about the the in the this, album, yeah. this album came out that's all they talk about and that was i think constructed because david byrne sent out this long letter with the demo or with the uh promotional materials explaining mm-hmm. that they were doing this and then he backtracks and says eh, it was a little overblown i i don't know what the story is there or why he did that yeah but um Her- jerry harrison says when they were recording this stuff it was almost like recording rehearsals and so they would do exactly what you said doug they would build these rhythms and then brian eno would come in and cut cut up stuff they did something that kind of i find a little weird um which is they would they would switch instruments yeah and you if you look at the credits on this everybody's playing every instrument well chris franz is playing keyboards uh i think tina weymouth is credited with keyboards before she's credited with bass well the reason they did that supposedly was because what that would do is somebody who wasn't normally the person on that instrument they would come up with something that was this is the term they use a little naive sounding yeah and, and that's on that so i i, I want to i can do that without switching instruments. <laughs> so i wanted to just say this because i was i was talking my wife and i went for a walk this morning and i was oh, talking i was talking about this album and uh she brought up a band that I don't think I've talked about on this podcast before called The Shag. Come here, do as please. They don't know what life really means. They don't listen to what the ones who really can't have to say. 
And she said, why do you like the shags and, you d- and this bothers you that they're switching instruments? And I said, yeah. well, you're, you're missing the point. I don't think the shags make good music. Um, and Did you mansplain it to her? No. <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. I said, I don't think the shags make good music, but I am fascinated by the fact that this, this band of four or three sisters, the dad essentially threw instruments at them and said, I want you to be a band. And so what they created was the same thing you would do if you were on a desert island and threw instruments at somebody you'd never seen before. Yeah. That fascinates me. What, what came out of that wasn't good, contrary to what Zappa says about them being bigger, better than the Beatles. Um, <laughs> But um, but this seems significantly more calculated to me. And, and well, a part of that is Eno. I mean that 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 is a that is straight okay, out of the a playbook. What the hell is he there for if he's not calculating? Yeah. But but it goes back to that whole thing about this being constructed by robots. I mean, the whole thing sounds like there's not. I mean, if you're a musician, you'd like to think there's some sort of semblance of your personality and soul coming out and what you're doing. And if you're deliberately switching instruments just to strip your music of that, that seems weird to me. I, I tell you, when I think about my good friend, Jonathan J.M. Rowe, uh-huh. loving this album uh-huh. and loving Astral Weeks at the same time, it blows your I mind. I go, wow. <laughs> well, Are y'all ready to start talking about this album instead of talking around this album? <laughs> yeah. Before we start talking about the songs, do we want to talk about the big bear? I'm saying bear for a reason. Bear in the room. Commies? No, Adrian Ballou. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so that is kind of interesting. Uh, it, so they kind of... I Zimbra, they had uh, Robert Fripp play a lot of the... Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, and he, so he was on it, and they wanted him to show up again on uh, Remain in Light. And Robert Fripp said, I can't do it. I've got a, a tour I'm doing. But you got to look at this young guy named Adrian Ballou. He is uh, in really creating some weird stuff. And Adrian Ballou, about this time, was also becoming a member of Fripp's band, uh, King Crimson. Well, the, the, that's an, it's interesting because the, the um, time frame, because Adrian Ballou actually played with the Talking Heads live mm-hmm. three times. Um, and uh, sat in sat in with them live, and he played. I think the last time was for an encore of Psycho Killer. Um, the so Adrian Ballou for those because Doug, I know you're going to ask. You listen to iCarly or whatever, and you're going to ask who Adrian Ballou is. <laughs> he was uh, he was a young guitarist from Nashville. He uh, he ends up in Zappa's touring band. Mm-hmm. David Bowie steals him from Zappa, and he's Zappa, uh, Bowie's touring guitarist as well as he's on what three? Is he on the three or no? He's not on the. I don't think he's on any of the Berlin trilogies. I think uh, he plays guitar at least. On, well, I don't know. I, he I plays know. on. Uh, I think he plays on Scary Monsters. But, okay. Yeah. Um, and then uh, and so where he is at this point is he's not touring with Bowie. He's got a, a side band with some of the people that he played with in. Uh, in Nashville called Gaga, and they're opening for the Pretenders, for Jefferson Starship, and then they gain a slot touring the East Coast with Robert Fripp's League of Gentlemen. Oh. So when they're in a show in New York is when David Byrne, Brian Eno, and Jerry Harrison see Gaga opening for Fripp's band, and they're like, okay, we got we to get this guy, <laughs> this guy to play with us. Um, and... Uh, and it's kind of an interesting thing because I th- I love Adrian Ballou. Yeah. I love the guy. Um, and it's difficult sometimes to really hear 
what he's doing on this album. I know because it doesn't um, sound like a guitar. It doesn't. Um, but he t- he said that when he got to the studio, they just told him to do whatever the hell he wanted to do. Mm-hmm. He's also said this was the this was the best experience he's ever pl- had playing with anybody. He just loved playing with Talking Heads. And if you see any, and we'll talk about this after we talk about the album. If you see any of the live shows of them touring this album. Blue looks like he's having the time of his life. Yeah, he's bouncing yeah. around on the stage. He's just absolutely giddy. And I've seen, I saw him with Crimson years ago. Yeah, I did too. And he was not, he wasn't that. Happy. <laughs> so, anyway. yeah. Well, another thing, he started off as a as a drummer. So he, uh, which is really hard for me to believe, but he, because you know, he his guitar playing is just phenomenal so i think he he when i saw him play with crimson he actually bill bruford and was it uh alan white and uh blue all they did this like triple drum solo together and everything so he's really into rhythms and um so the other thing about adrian blue is he does not just play guitar straight if you, he's always playing some sort of uh, he's he's using the whammy bar like well, crazy. That's, his second album was called the Twang Bar King. Yeah. And the reason why is because he likes to play. <laughs> he, he you like, can hear it on this. Yeah. In fact, yeah. It's some of the later songs, he's wah wahing all over the place. Yeah. And, and that, what's that album he did? Is it his debut called Rhinoceros? Which is a fine, fine Most album. Most of his solo stuff is great. Yeah. Yeah. He was born in Kentucky and uh, I, he moved to Nashville. I'm not entirely sure when. And he, out of all the places to become a member of Frank Zappa's band, band. Yeah. <laughs> coming from Nashville. I guess Lil George was a member of. Zappa's band as well. He's from California, though. You guys ready to talk about this amazing album? Yeah. I am. Okay. Well, this is the fourth studio album from the Talking Heads. I'm, right. I was just looking. here. If, if you've lost interest in what we're talking about now, because Tony and I are not exactly fans, I just want to point out how far out we are from the critics. I have all music Five stars. Chicago Tribune, four out of four. Uh, Irish Times, I don't know why uh, that gets included, but um, five. Mojo, five. Pitchfork, ten of ten. Yeah, it's Rolling Stones, it's five. A, Rolling it, Stones album guide, five. Everybody calls it their masterpiece. It is. Uh, it. There is not a rating that... Could it, be higher. They, and it's they, not just critics either. I mean, you go in the no, online community. I was looking for somebody that would it. agree with me on my feelings about this album, and I can't find, other than the guy I'm looking at right now, I can't <laughs> find anybody. Yeah. We're on a we're on a tiny little island by ourselves on this. So um, yeah. Well, I, I, you know, I mentioned things before. I mentioned that people will say things that you would normally think would not be a good thing, but meaning in a positive light. You know, like this one reviewer said that uh, remain in light had more words than any previous Heads record, but they counted for less than ever. How is that a positive thing? I don't get that. Or this guy that says it's the, uh, the Talking Heads took the next step in art for art's sake. 
I mean, that just sounds that like... That sounds correct to me. It, it I, is I correct. really do think it is that's correct, spot on. But he's not and, saying uh, that as a... As a I'm going to pretend like I wrote that. He doesn't... But he's not saying that as a as a negative. He would think that's a negative thing. Arts for art's sake is doesn't... But he's like, this is... They had already done everything they could do in the rock and roll space, so then they wanted to create something for art's sake. It just sounds... Well, you know... I, I'll be the first to admit that I have huge gaps in my understanding of art. Uh, particularly modern art or big statues of nothing in the middle of parks. I have zero understanding of that. Well, and, uh, I, and maybe that's, that's... A lot of this seems like that to me. Maybe that's where I am, too. I, I'll freely admit I don't get a whole lot of this stuff. Um, I, You know, because there are other bands that incorporated, you know, international sounds to their music, like The Clash. The Clash pulled in all sorts of stuff. Um, and I... I think I think the difference to me is the Clash songs still have some sort of traditional pop structure yeah. to them, and these do not at well, all. Well, I, I think Clash has some of the most poppy sounds that there are out there. Um, I'll tell you, the way I try to describe myself in this band is I don't have receptors for this. It's not their fault. It's I was born without the receptors that go, hey, I want to hear this. And the other thing is, I don't know when I want to listen. To, what is this music for? Is it for dancing? I can believe that. But I'll tell you what, I don't like to dance, so I don't know what to do with it. <laughs> I, wa I was going to ask JM to hum one of the tunes. Well, that brings us to the three tests. <laughs> we've, we've got three tests that we talk about on this podcast. Uh, one is the kitchen table test. One is the monkey's test. What's the other one? I forgot. It, one. it fails both of those. I'm <laughs> it is absolutely not a country. I mean, it's not a, a coffee ta or a kitchen, kitchen table. table, and it doesn't pass the monkey's test. Um, oh, the other test is if you were just to read the lyrics without music, would it be poetry? Yeah. Um, I think so, some people might say it would be. Yeah. It's um, evocative. It's not necessarily. It does create images. Yeah. But it's hard to it's hard to say what they are. Yeah. Anyway. Side one is um, blessed with three songs. It's like a Rush album. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's not a long album. Let's be born under punches. The heat goes on. song about jam uh you know i don't really know but I, I do what is it it's supposedly about government oppression and paranoia really yeah and if you if you look at the title is pretty sinister implies something sinister so that makes sense if you think about mm -hmm. uh the government oppression born under punches kind of you know makes yeah. sense i guess yeah. um, well, what, do you know what inspired them to to jump on this yeah, I read something that part of this album was inspired by John Dean and the Watergate cover-up. I, I will say, in looking at the lyrics and you know going to certain sites where they have some explanations or whatever, I it it was amazing that people were able to pull stuff out of these. I'm not disagreeing with them; they're probably right, but I didn't get it. I mean, it was, I was well. The the most obvious line in the in the album or on the song is "All I want is to breathe." Won't you breathe with me? What the hell does that mean? I mean, oh, it no. sounds it's almost also, like a yoga thing. Yeah. Um, 
I, I, this song, I'll be honest with you. When I first started listening to this album, I felt like punching somebody after every song. <laughs> uh, but this song has kind of grown on me with repeated yeah. listenings. I can't say I like it necessarily, but um, I don't hate it. Uh, I, I could do without all the monkey chants and hiccups and gargling that's going on. See, I love that but, stuff. Uh, uh, the, the way that the vo- like all of those weird so- sounds are coming out of it and all those weird polyrhythms are coming up. And then all of a sudden you just have this calm uh, harmony vocals that are coming out of it that are just almost lying on top of it. And it's like, you know, they're the duck and the music underneath is the the feet paddling you know uh oh, that's interesting um it's that's just the image yeah it, it's it's i find it to be pretty fascinating again you know not a lot of chord changes in fact i don't think there is a single well, chord change on the uh, yeah if i was going to have any like sort of surface level complaint about a lot of the songs particularly on the first side because yeah. i like the second side a little bit better than the first side is uh by the way i knew you were going to say that is <laughs> that uh they're way too long to me i can see that they, yeah it, there's a point where i'm like okay i'm i'm oh sort of okay with this and then it keeps going mm-hmm. and i'm not okay with it anymore yeah yeah um but uh, yeah I, and blue has got a guitar solo on this song yeah. i have no idea where it is supposedly <laughs> it's at the 245 mark and i've gone back and listened to that a million times and, yeah and there's a guitar there but it's not what i would call a guitar solo no no, I don't. I don't. He's, is he? He's running his guitar through it. All, all sorts, sorts of stuff. stuff. Right. Yeah, and he's playing on the neck a lot of times with his pick. Yeah, and just uh, making all like yeah, making all sorts of weird stuff. He's he doesn't finger tap like you know Eddie Van Halen or, but he I does use his pick. and and in terms of song structure, you know, like we said, they're they're looping these things, mm-hmm. and, and and yeah. yeah. Anyway, yeah. Anyway, I, I I thought it's a great opening well, to them. It's absolutely original. It's absolutely <laughs> fascinating. I just don't know what I'm supposed to do while I'm listening. To it. <laughs> well, it sounds like a Coleco football team thing. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. You know, when when you said it's it's uh, original, there is nothing else in 1980 that even remotely sounds like this. Really, that was being yeah. made by a, no. I, a and I have to band. think it had enormous influence. Yeah, yeah, yeah I think yeah. so too. And that may have been why the critics fell all over. They're like, "This is new. This is different." Mm-hmm. And um, what, what I think is really interesting is here's this guy with this voice that can't do very much and this is perfect for his voice yeah i i can it's hard for me to think of another voice doing this well i thought about you a lot doug when i listened to this album because uh it's it if there's a a more prototype herky-jerky kind of delivery of that that epitomizes that new wave style of singing you don't like i can't imagine (laughs) where it it is but you know most of that is uh that you're talking about is stressed vowels and this isn't as much of that as raised voice and uh i guess it's a, a drone uh, uh, there's a drone, and then he raises his voice like he's hollering at himself in a different, I guess it's a different take that where he goes, Hands of the government! And then his <laughs> other voice is going, oh, dr- Again, that, that drone is a, is a pretty spot on, because again, yeah. I think a lot of times the vocals on this are just another layer added mm-hmm. to the sound. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Well, you yeah. got to hand it to him. He's the guy knows what his voice is for. Yeah, and he he successfully does it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then we go on to a next another song that has a lot of rhythm in it. <laughs> this is a, this is oh, what's the name of it? Oh, cross-eyed and painless. Case in point of uh, Tina Weymouth. I mean, this song is not this song. Right. This rhythm is not this rhythm without her l- laying down that bass groove. Yeah. It's like, uh, the, I think it's the talking heads that they're funkiest, and it's got that, she's playing that slap bass thing. I'm, I'm assuming it's her. I can't imagine who else it would be. Uh, is she credited as ba- for bass on yeah, the song? I don't know. It, it, I mean, it, she does play the bass on she, this song, yeah. so I just didn't know if she switched or did whatever. Yeah. Um, I'm guessing that it is she playing the bass on it um you know and there's just a multitude of just rhythm guitars all over the place uh it's yeah like you were saying doug it's it's very very rhythmic i was gonna say this is one of the songs i actually again i because i do like i'm fascinated by david burns vocals and mm-hmm. i like them on this song i think they work on this song i don't necessarily like the song per se but well it's not a song really again it's just yeah. kind of a a jam well yeah i think Tony mentioned one of the problems is you're asking a lot of people to listen to these things for as long as they are. Well, a reviewer reviewer at the time said this phrase, which I think is spot on. He said, the talking heads are asking you to have an open mind with this album, and you really need one to appreciate it. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And, you know, uh, I tried. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to repeat. My problem with this album is my problem. It's not them. And I just don't think I have a... I don't have receptors for it. Yeah, uh, that's, a, that's a valid point. I may be the same way. Yeah. I may be too narrow in my receptors. Well, I, I just... Um, yeah. I'm not in the mood for what he's doing, yeah. even though uh, intellectually I'm going, nice work, very impressive. Yeah. Um, but I'm not in the mood for it. it I, I just don't think any of the. Um, I don't think anything I'm saying degrades them. Well, yeah. they, we got a whole other song on this side. <laughs> yeah, this is the uh, the Great Curve. is one of my favorites on the album uh, I, it's one of my favorite songs by the talking heads and i love the vocal chants on this and and, and they go from one ear to the other and it's almost like there's uh, it's like three choirs going at once um there's hardly any like can you hear david burns vocals anywhere in this i mean it's almost like everybody he's not just singing by himself almost the whole time and then the solo by Adrian Blue on this is just well. There's me- sort of fascinating. Two. There's the middle one, and then the one leading yeah. the end of the song out, yeah. which again I think is a little too long. It's six <laughs> yeah. minutes and twenty eight seconds. But yeah, if you want to hear what Adrian Blue can do with a guitar, it's this is the the song to to listen to. It's 
I don't know, I, I find it a fascinating song. I can't really say much more about it other than I just like the, the way that it's arranged. I like the layers to it. Um, and I really like the way that Blue plays the guitar on this. It, it, to me, it seems like um, four of the whitest people <laughs> in the entire world were asked to contribute to the Shep soundtrack. <laughs> uh, um, I, I think this goes to your comment about receptors. I dislike this song immensely. Really, I don't like the vocals on it at all. Really, I don't. I and I hate them actually. Um, and every time I hear the song, they they pull me out of it, and they're just like it's just not something my body wants to embrace. Hmm. Um, I I have a question for Doug though, because I too like the solo on it, but this seems to be right in that area where you're talking about someone laying down a guitar solo on something that has nothing to do with what's going on underneath it. Really? Yeah. Well, you, you know what the problem is? Um, the, the guitar solo is very cool noises, um, very original sound. I, I don't know. I would love to see what his setup was to get this kind of noise. But it was a he lot. Is, he's not interfering with the melody. Mm-hmm. And the reason he's not is because there's not a melody. <laughs> so it's not the usual thing that bothers me where the solo has nothing to do with the song. This is. I got you. There's not really a song there for him to uh, adhere to. So, I mean, the, the, the way that I can. Like, I love Love Supreme by John Coltrane. And there is some stuff that. Coltrane is doing, of course, he does do some nice melodies and everything, but there's times when the saxophone is just kind of out there from the, what the rest yeah. of the, the band is doing, and that's kind of how I look at this uh, this song, is like the band is doing something and then Adrian Ballou comes in and just like, hey, I'm getting bored. Whoa! What the heck? Sam, hell is that that I'm listening to? Um, like, I didn't... I, if you had asked me when I, the first time I heard this song, was that a guitar? I'm not sure I could have told you that it is one. So... Well, it anyway. sounds like a screaming beast. Yeah, it sounds um, great. Um, yeah, I just he's uh, he's playing that over a groove and not yeah. not a not a melody. So um, yeah, I can't say that he's distracting from the melody. Yeah. Oh. Anyway, we're gonna flip this sucker over after only three songs. Which Again, Rush territory. <laughs> odd Tony for a new wave Rush. band. Mm-hmm. And we've got a hit. How did I get here? Song one on side two. It wasn't yeah. a hit when it was released. It wasn't? I don't think so. I think it took a while, but I it got it, lots of MTV airplay. It did. The, the video, uh, the video the was a monster. Pretty, yeah. um, I don't know. I, I'd put these guys and Peter Gabriel at the uh, at the top of the video world as yeah. far as provocative, uh, yeah. uh, captivating yeah. videos. Yeah. And, his, and uh, Dave Burns definitely a performance artist that benefits from the visual yeah and he's got the video has that uh i guess it's west african uh, women doing that 
thing with their hands, and then he's doing the same thing when they, he's singing uh, it. Yeah. You know who co- co-directed this video? I want to say Tony Basil. Tony Basil. Is that right? Yep. Wow. Yep. And is that Ricky? You're so fine. It is. Yeah. It is. She keeps popping up all the time. She <laughs> does. Um, yeah. She she says about the video, and I do want to talk about the song as well. But she says, did that, we mention that this is once in a lifetime? Oh no, I don't think we did. <laughs> once in a lifetime. James this is my first. This is my first a, uh, cut. This is my first experience with this band seeing this video. Uh-huh. Um, but And it was, you're right, visually it was like, wow, what is going on here? But she says that they, uh, uh, David Byrne wanted, because he's you know dressed as a preacher, and he actually, um, the his vocal performance is based on preachers. He wanted a bunch of um, video uh, themed around like rich religious rituals and behavior. So they went to UCLA and pulled up all these old these like preacher videos, evangel really? yeah. evangelists and people in trances and African tribes. They didn't huh. use all of it, some of it did, but yeah, they had this huge like you know. Yeah. Here's something I that will may surprise you. So again, I want to talk about the song in a minute, but it's been covered by the Smashing Pumpkins. It's been covered by Fish. It's been covered by PM Dawn, if you remember that. Band. Yeah, <laughs> and it's been covered by Jimmy Buffett. Oh my God! Are you serious? You yes. got to be kidding me. Um, we got to find that. I I tell you, of all the bands we've talked about, this would probably be my last choice to cover anything by them because I think they make this music so uniquely theirs. Yeah. Um, it and and it hit number fourteen on the UK singles chart, but it only hit a hundred hundred and three um, on the US Billboard chart. Wow! This was the lead single off the album. Did you guys know Robert Palmer plays guitar and percussion on this song? I Robert didn't know that. Palmer? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yep. Um, I, I love what Tina Wayman says about the the bass. She goes, "The bass part was a really dumb bass line, <laughs> but she she felt like she needed a re- need space for all the cacophony going on around." Yeah, yeah. Just, and it never changes. I think it's brilliant because they're talking about water under the water, and it sounds like bubbles. Her bass plan sounds like well, that's uh, true, some kind yeah. of aqua deal. Well, and that goes to what Jerry Harrison did because he he made this sort of bubbling synth sound, mm-hmm. um, which what uh, the drummer says really. changed change the mood of the song when he introduced that, that, that yeah that's know? a really cool um, sound i don't know how they then, did it and then the ending as the song fades out there's sort of this doomy organ sound which is evidently based on the riff from what goes on by the velvet underground eno didn't like this song really really he didn't like it and they almost didn't put it on the album but david Byrne said i can come up with some lyrics give me a chance so he put Pulled some lyrics together, and then Eno had this idea of the melody and the chorus being a kind of a call and response thing. Yeah, and that's when the whole preacher thing came into mind. Uh, and Byrne said that's what he based his, his intonation on was on these preachers, and um, like he's given a sermon. Yeah. Uh, and the other interesting thing is most people don't know what the song is about. They think it's some sort of you know speaking about yuppie greed or something like that. Mm-hmm. And what David Byrne says is actually about the unconscious. Huh. And how we all sort of operate half awake and on autopilot all the time. So when he says, yeah. "Is this my beautiful house?" It's not. That's not any sort of comment on it being a big house. It's like you're just you're sort of realizing, walking yeah. around, realizing that all this stuff is around you. Mm-hmm. Um, well, and then what water uh, is always used when talking about the unconscious yeah. or the dream. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Under the water. So Carry this water. this song became a hit because of the live version on um, from. Uh, uh, stop making stop sense. Stop making sense. Yeah. So it, it 
the live version got a little airplay. I think we all saw it on MTV just because that's you know mm-hmm. that and burning down the house were both big yeah. videos on MTV. Yeah. Um, burning down the house is on their next doc, talking his next album, right? Yeah, yeah. So with another thing about I'm a sucker for somebody speaking at the beginning of something like "Here Comes My Girl" by uh, Petty. Thomas Petty. Yeah, yeah. I, I love that when they when they just are talking and talking, and then all of a sudden the chorus comes in, and it's you know just a a, a really nice, um, really nice melody. I mean, the melody on this is is really cool i think once in a lifetime and the way that the backing vocals are harmonizing and so i I obviously didn't come to the song the way i came to every other song on this album i knew this song was part of my musical Mm -hmm. dna so it it would be it would be interesting there's no way i could do this if i had never heard this song and heard it for the first time what i would think about it yeah because i like it but Mm -hmm. again it's i've heard it since i was 13 years old (laughs) yeah yeah it's one of those that's kind of black dog by Led Zeppelin. It's like, yeah, just do I like this song or not? I've heard it so many times. Yeah, I can't tell you. Well, that was the big hit. Up next, Houses in Motion. Another hollering song. Yeah. Would, would you agree with me? This is sort of where the album takes, like, dives into much more ambient, mellow. Yep. I mean, this song isn't quite there yet, but it seems like it it's turns getting there. towards this mellow. Where there's now there's it's a slowed tension. down a lot. There's a yeah. tension between this sort of grooviness and this this sort of ambient droniness that continues mm-hmm. on. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and it's this is to me one of the more fascinating songs on the album. It's got the trumpet played by john hassel who plays his trumpet through a whole bunch of different effects it almost doesn't sound like a uh well you can't well, it sounds like an elephant you yeah. can't have an instrument actually sound like an instrument on this album <laughs> the instruments it's supposed to be right that's the rule number one yeah uh john hassel just passed away recently um he um was he's worked with eno a lot on Eno's solo albums and he i think they actually made a uh an album together um but he yeah he's got that uh he's got that pretty long solo in the middle of the song that yeah you can't tell what it is but that's a trumpet um but it's yeah and i I love again the rhythms on it it's got the uh synthetic percussion coming in and the the guitars making those um kind of whiny sounds throughout um anyway I, i it's one of my favorite songs on the album and following that tune is Seen and Not Seen. He imagined that this was an ability he shared with most other people. They had also molded their faces. And this is my favorite song on the album. JM's number one favorite. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe this, my favorite this talking head song. to prove that I don't necessarily like everything that has hand claps in it. <laughs> <laughs> it's another one that's the the drum machine kind of uh, sets the rhythm and um, 
it's like David Byrne just doing this kind of stream of consciousness sort of, I don't know, it's like, uh, who's that guy that wrote Sound and the Fury? Faulkner. It's almost like listening to a Faulkner, like if Faulkner wrote a song, that's it, what it would seem like to me. Yeah, and there's there's that part where it comes in where I think it's a guitar and a synthesizer playing at the same time where the guitars are, are chiming. And this is another one where there's really no... Uh, melody. David Byrne doesn't really sing. You know? This sounds, I mean, I think the perfect term for this is drone. Yeah. Yeah. It's just it, this kind of ambient noise. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, but it's, it's still, it's not the same ambient noise through the whole thing. It, it changes. The thing that surprises me is they don't do whatever trick bands do to make it sound like they're, well, I guess they compress the vocals and take off the high and the low. And they make it sound like they're, uh, they do it on the day in a life mm-hmm. where they make it sound like it's a broadcast of something yeah. on a, a real thin radio signal. Yeah. I can't believe they didn't do that because it sounds like exactly what they would do. And uh, I, I guess I give them points for not well, doing that. Supported your expectations. Yeah, for surprising me and just, and just speaking low enough where you can't understand it. Yeah, yeah. He would see faces see, and movies. Again, and I think this. I, I think you're onto something about this hitting me in a way that I don't get or that I can't understand. Because Jam saying this is his favorite song is amazing to me. Yeah, this is. It's amazing that it's his favorite, and it's amazing that he called it a song. Well, it's, ama- <laughs> it's amazing because we're the polar opposites. He's attuned. You're Jam. You're attuned to this I am stuff a t- in a way that I'm not. Because I hear I, this song is not something I would want to listen. I just to. find it it's, fascinating. It's a guy talking with the mic volume too low and sound effects going over his head. I know. And that's what I, I think you, you've been to Las Vegas, then the old town where they have that, uh, that screen that's on the, what is that? Where it's overhead yeah, of all those. Yeah. This is what noises should come from that screen. <laughs> the stuff flying over your head. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I don't know. It's, it's, I think it's a fantastic song and it's, it, it was the song that sucked me into this album, or the piece that sucked me into this album. Wow. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to go ahead and say, if you're interested in getting into this album, you might not start at the same place Jimmy did. <laughs> <laughs> Although, we're obviously wrong about this album. Yeah, yeah. We are. We're going to both take a big F on our uh, uh, critics' roll this week. Mm-hmm. Up next, Listening Wind. Because usually we're the ones listening to the wind. <laughs> um, this is one of the few songs on the album where the chords actually change. So that, that makes it a little more interesting. This is not one of my favorite songs so on funny. the album. <laughs> it's one of mine. <laughs> is, this, is this the most African song on the album? It might be. I, yeah. I, I like what's going on here, mainly because there's you can actually tell what, a, what the guitar is doing. Yeah, yeah. And Adrian Ballou's got his nickname on full display here, the Twang Bar King. Yeah, I mean, there's a yeah. lot of that going on. I Yeah, I, I think... Uh, it's not my favorite song, but it's the one. It's one that I, I, if I had to pick a song that I really like, this would be one of them. The guitars and the bass are both really interesting on this song. I think uh, probably, and I could, I could see why you would. This would be your favorite. 
It's not my no. favorite. Well, it would be one you would yeah. like if there's one you were. If I if I were to pick a song that Tony would like on this album, I would say this would be one of them. But, and and this seems like the only one that's trying to tell a story. Maybe. Yeah. 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 It's probably got the most audible David Byrne vocals, and there's not a whole lot of other vocals that are coming in on top of his. So, yeah, I think you're right. It might be the most straightforward. Uh, well, I think it's... Uh, I'm going to echo what Tony said about the guitar. Anybody ever made it sound like this even close on a guitar before? I don't recognize this noise ever before. I can't say that I... Adrian Blue is amazing. Yeah, he yeah. can really make some... And it's... it's um, it's not just amazing playing. It's perfectly appropriate for yeah. what, we're, what yeah. we're putting it with. Good yeah. point. Yep, it is. Well, ladies and gentlemen, uh, we are now at the last song on the album. Condition of mercy in the weather Overload. No comment, Tony. <laughs> no, 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 no. On no. the title of the song, I, I, I'm fascinated by the fact that you get to the end of the album and there's no groove left. Nope. Yeah. And the, the drum is the drum parts are so slow, and it's it's a, I mean, it's almost a workout for Chris Franz just to not go any faster than he is going i mean it's and it's it's a weird beat it's a really weird beat that he's putting down um and it's almost like he's not setting the rhythm you know it's yeah. like something else is setting the rhythm the, this song reminds me now it's not the same thing but it reminds me of the more atmospheric sort of early pink floyd stuff mm -hmm. um you know, and I dig that. I mean, yeah. I, I if this if I walked in a room and this song was in the background, I wouldn't go. Ugh. I'd, I'd sit down and maybe enjoy it a little bit. Yeah, yeah. It's almost scary. I mean, even the lyrics are almost, are, are you know, are almost scary. I mean, well, this is wandering around in the subway system of an abandoned city. Yeah, a terrible signal is the opening line. Um, it's got that weird kind of helicopter sounding synth in the background, which also. <laughs> prompt me to think of pink floyd when i started <laughs> yeah um you know and, and it, it just kind of fades out um throughout at the you know that's how it ends that's how the whole album ends yeah. and it's, they yeah, don't want it, you thinking that you just spent time listening to bubblegum pop uh, <laughs> no 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 by wrapping it, it up but, this way but it is kind of it is kind of interesting how it starts off so strong with nothing but a rhythm and groove and ends on this sort of just whatever yeah. You know, what's yeah. a one giant uh, drone again? Yeah, but this time it's a dirge drone. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Say what you will about his voice; it is very limited, but he can inhabit characters. I, well, I'll say what I always say about voice: it's what's the purpose of the voice, and it's yeah. communicating. Yeah, and uh, he does that very well. He gets across what he's trying to say and and the feeling he's trying to give. And uh, on this last song, probably more than any other. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's just uh, anybody that wants to know what hopeless people feel like, just, <laughs> this is it, baby. It is. 
It's remarkable. Open your refrigerator with it with nothing in there but spoiled milk and listen to this song. <laughs> and olives. I like olives. I, do I, too. I, I love olives. But. Okay. We're sorry. We apologize to our Italians. <laughs> I don't and think our Greek have listeners. It. Actually, Spain uh, grows and more olives than uh, Italy. They just uh, send them to Italy so Americans will buy them. It's really silly. J.M.? Yes. Jonathan J.M. Rowe? Uh-huh. Uh, thank you for exposing Tony and I to something that we would never expose ourselves to. You're welcome. Um, we're going to do a little uh, reviewing of this record now. Uh, as y'all probably know, I'm going to start with Tony. He's going to give us two reviews. One is the cold-hearted critic that lets uh, none of his emotions interfere with his review. And the other will be how he feels about the album on a personal level. Will he listen to it again? Is this uh, something that makes him tap his foot and want to go out dancing with the wife? Tony! Yeah. How about giving us your review? So, I'll start with the critic first. I, I've said this before about things I don't quite get, but I appreciate what's going on here. I think this album is exactly what this band was trying to do with it. And, and, and it's unlike anything else that was really coming out at that time in, in terms of a band of, of this sort of stature, I guess, if you'd say that, in terms of their exposure. Um, I think uh, it's uh, unusual. Um, it's the production on it's great, you know, which, you know, has a lot to do with Eno. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm going to give it a four in terms of that. My personal rating, I, I tried really hard to listen to this with an open mind. Uh, this was a really difficult album for me, mainly because of what I mentioned earlier with the, it doesn't have a traditional song structure. Maybe mm-hmm. I'm just a limited moron, but I like, I like songs to be tuneful. Um, I admittedly, I don't get it. Um, it. As I mentioned before, it sounds like something robots would do. Um, and for an album that's based so more than meets the eye, yeah. For an album that's based <laughs> that's on, coming up soon on African time. polyrhythms and funk, like it's supposed to, it's it's remarkably soulless um, and mechanical sounding. Uh, <laughs> uh, if I'm going to be honest, I will never listen to this album. Again. <laughs> I'm going to give it a one. <laughs> Lowest rating yet. <laughs> well, ladies and gentlemen, uh, I'm going to go next. Because we like to save the uh, picker for last, um, I'm I'm intrigued by the fact that this album depends so heavily on African rhythms, just like Paul Simon's album did. Yeah, and they couldn't be further apart in my mind than they are. <laughs> I, and I can't. I'm not sure I can explain that. Except uh, um, Paul seems like a human being. Um, <laughs> uh, He's as big of an egomaniac as David Byrne is. Uh, I'm sure he is, but he's a human egomaniac. He's not the Borg. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I I think you're right. The Borg is sitting in their cube listening to nonstop remaining light. (laughs) I think this album is a masterpiece. I think it is brilliant and clever. And I'm going to give it a 4.9. I'm not going to give it a 5. Just because I can't. I can't make myself do that. But everything on this album, if you take it apart and look at what's going on, is as good as an album can be without a soul. And um, it's just 
Absolutely amazing. Brian Eno keeps impressing me week after week every time JM drags him out again <laughs> about what he does. Admittedly, um, I think I was the first person to bring a Brian Eno produced album. Well, that was you. Yeah, too. that was right. you. Very yeah. different than this. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you talk about a detached. Uh, Bono is the least detached person <laughs> we've talked about. He's oozing all over the place. Anyway. Um, I am going to listen to this album the same way again, the same way I listened to XTC again, just trying to figure out what the hell's wrong with me, um, and and to see if I can. Uh, I, I have since we started this process, I have learned that you take a break and come back to some of these albums and you hear them in a way you never heard them before. I will do that, uh, but on the on a personal level. I'm I'm gonna give this a three, as far as uh, enjoyment. There is something that you can, there is something that you do to this album uh, while you listen to it that I don't do, and that's part of the problem. I don't think I have a, as I've said before, I don't think I have a place for this to absorb this album. I did listen to it while I was exercising, and it made a little more sense then. When I wasn't listening hard, but it was sort of making up the uh, the background noise of my uh, of my exercise. But mm -hmm. um, uh, I'm not gonna. My problem with not digging this album is my problem, and not the Talking Heads. Jonathan J M Rowe. Yes, it sounds like a producer's album. Yeah, I think you're right. I think it is a producer's album. Um, so I'm going to give my I'm going to give my critic rating first. Uh, I'm going to give it a five zero. I I really do think that it's a remarkable album. The fact that it was made in 1980, I'd never heard anything that sounds like this beforehand. Um, I think the closest that I've, you could get is I Zimbra by um, Talking Heads on their first album. There's <laughs> There's a thing you get to talking heads is talking heads. <laughs> or and then there's some stuff that Eno was doing uh, after another Green World, where with, he was working with Phil Collins and just doing some remarkable, weird sounding stuff, making basses sound weird and and uh, working with Robert Fripp and stuff. So I, this to me is an, an a, a natural leap for Brian Eno. It's not a natural leap for the Talking Heads. Um, but I find it, again, I just find it a fascinating album. Um, as far as my personal rating, I am going to also give it a 5-0. I, I listen to this album about as often as I listen to a Dire Straits album, uh, making movies. Uh, it's, it's one of my favorite albums to listen to. It's one of my favorite albums to drive to. It's one of my favorite albums to listen while I'm working out. Um, it's one of my favorite albums just to, I mean, I have a hard time when this album is on, I am engrossed with it. It's really difficult for me to be doing anything else. And, um, I mean, I'm just fascinated by it. I think it's, it's a wonderful, wonderful album. So I give it a five zero. Wow. The second double five on the podcast. Mm -hmm. What was the first one? American beauty. I gave it a double five. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that is a wrap. We have completed another fantastic edition of This is Vinyl Tap. It's 70 what, Jam? Are we on 71? I believe we are at 75. 75, ladies and gentlemen. Yep. And uh, a little special uh, thing to let you all know about. At 100, 
we are going to do the first repeat artist. Uh, if you'd like to share with us which artist you think is important enough for us to repeat and do again, an album, uh, we've, we've uh, already done one album. Is there somebody who we need to do another album for? Let us know. And uh, Tony, how do they communicate with us? Well, uh, Doug, thank you for asking. They can. The easiest way to communicate with us is to go to our website, tappingvinyl.com. There is a contact us place uh, a button. You click on that, and there's a little form you can fill out. And easy as mud. Easy as mud. That's not right. Uh, <laughs> easy as Sunday morning. Easy as mud pie. And uh, and they can and they get shot straight to our Gmail account, and we'll read it and uh, uh, compile uh, votes and. Uh, Go from there. Very good. And we love uh, hearing y'all. Uh, you know, we get a lot of really positive uh, letters, except for uh, Stoner Steve. Um, <laughs> but we would like some criticism so we can improve. Uh, we're flying blind here, ladies and gentlemen, yep. unless y'all tell us what we need to quit doing or what we need to do more of or something like that. Also, be sure and leave us uh, a review on your favorite podcasting platform. Uh, leave us some stars. And one other thing, uh, I just want to mention that Sweden, once again, is our number one non-English speaking country. Thank you guys very much. And uh, Toronto is our highest non-Texas country. Uh, Toronto's not a country, excuse me, Texas is, but Toronto's not. Uh, Toronto is a city. Uh, and uh, Vancouver, British Columbia is um, number six. So thank you, uh Thank you, Canada, for we, for tuning in. And I don't know, Doug, if we you you keep a better track of this than I do. We actually hit the charts in Australia for the first time. Hey, yep, well, that's right. good. Australia on the last five episodes came in one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, number nine. Okay, uh, number nine. but thank you, Australia. Um, we appreciate y'all down there uh, or up there. I, I didn't mean to imply that we're on the top of the world. <laughs> It is the land down under. What about the... That's uh, what Australia means, I believe. What about recommendation? Oh, I thought you were going to say, what about New Zealand? Oh. Um, we like New Zealand, too. Yeah. Um, Got an album coming up. One thing we're a little blind on is what the kids are listening to. <laughs> and that's why we have uh, Encyclopedia Tony here. Tony, Yeah. what are these hipsters listening to today? Well, I wanted to recommend an album of songs tonight, uh, based on what we're talking about. <laughs> you want to depart from uh, this evening well, and do songs? <laughs> look, it's it, yeah, and I and I hate I hate to you know sound like a broken record, but this is a it's a pop album, uh, but it's not a power pop per se. It's this is a local band called Shivery Shakes. Um, I would recommend their 2014 album called Three Waves and a Shake. What made me think about it mainly was not so much that it's the anti remain in light as much as it's a very summer album uh in fact the cover of it is a milkshake superimposed on a bunch of waves at the ocean uh and it's got you know some songs with summary titles on it but it's just a a great sort of homage to 60s era shimmery pop tunes uh and uh i would recommend it highly a couple of standouts are i'd say song Take it back. Tell me, tell me, tell me what you want to hear. Do you wish that we could disappear from the city? 
song called Remember When. Both of those are two of my favorite songs on the album. whole album's good if you like that 60s era it's a different little modern take on it but it's definitely uh paying homage to that sound so again uh three waves and a shake by shivery shakes local austin band well tony thank you very much um i'm about to turn it over here to uh jm but i want to repeat that it is summer here in austin texas with a vengeance and if you are in california right now considering relocating i would like you to know that it is 130 degrees today and it's looking for 107 before the day is done uh but anyway um that's how it is in austin mm-hmm. jam all right. Well, that brings us to the end of another episode of This is Vinyl Tap. Uh, like we were mentioning earlier, be sure and look us up on uh, our webpage, tappingvinyl.com. We also have a Facebook group page, and we're on Twitter at Tapping Vinyl. And if you're old school and like sending emails, we're at tappingvinyl at gmail.com. Next week, we're going to be looking at an album from the early 70s by one of the biggest rock groups of the 70s and perhaps the 60s firm entrenched member of the British invasion the who 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 what <laughs> what album's next and their album who's next Doug just asked you, what album's that? <laughs> What's his name on third? Yeah. For our host, Doug Cooper, our co-host, Tony Slagle, and me, your humble producer, Jonathan J.M. Rowe, this is Vinyl Tap, where all the podcasts go to 11. And reminding you, where is your beautiful wife? Oh.